We're in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 4. Remember to take a look at your bulletin. There's a lot of things happening now as we move into the Christmas and Advent season and things, some of the things you need to make reservations for. So pay attention to those among the upcoming events. Now let's look at the Word of God in chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This passage of Scripture in chapter 4 completes the thought and is really the second part of what was addressed in chapter 3. This is one of those times when it's a little bit unfortunate there are chapter divisions in the Bible. Although they're wonderful and convenient and we almost have to have them in order to get our references, still it breaks the flow. Our passage begins with a therefore in it. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Well, all we saw in the previous passage, which we looked at last week, was God's people in the Old Testament were brought miraculously and savingly and wondrously and out of Egyptian bondage and brought by Moses, led by Moses, brought by God out into the wilderness so that they could keep his Sabbaths and could obey his voice and could worship him. And God had promised them that he was going to lead them through the wilderness to the promised land, the land of milk and honey, the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land that they had been waiting for multiple generations, 300, 400 years they had waited and now they were going to be led into that land and there in that land they would have a rest, a peace, a respite. There would be according to the prophetic word, they would each man would sit under his vine. He would enjoy his own piece of property, his allotment, his share. He would enjoy prosperity. He would enjoy his children to the third and fourth generation. He would eat of the fat of the land. He would drink from wells that he did not dig. And he would drink from and eat from orchards that he did not tend. And he would have abundance of grain that he did not plant. 
He would be brought in to rest. And yet, we saw last week that the people refused to enter because of rebellion, because of unbelief. And the whole story of the wilderness wanderings as found in the books of Exodus and Numbers, the whole story is the story of the people rebelling, provoking God, tempting God, backing down, backsliding, grossly sinning, having a few revival meetings where they said, you know, I'm going to, from now on, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to do better. I'm going to keep the commandments. And then fail yet again. Tragic story, horrible story, sad story. And that was the problem. But you know, God didn't, did not abrogate. He did not desist from his plans. If you don't learn anything else about God, you need to know that he is the Lord. He will accomplish that which he says he will accomplish. The Lord is determined to give a rest to his people. He's just going to do it. It doesn't matter how much the people fail. It doesn't matter how much unbelief is there. The Lord is going to overcome. He is going to prevail. He's going to bring his people into that rest. And see, that's the whole goal. That's the whole vision of the earthly existence. God created the earth, and the, the creation is referred to twice here in this passage. God created the whole earth, and in six days and on the seventh day, he rested. The theme of rest is strong in the scripture. Let me just sketch it for you, and, and this, is, this is very much a sketch, but we've got to have this background in order to understand what God's talking about when he says there remains a rest for the people of God. When God says you can still enter into that rest, the theme of rest is found going all the way back in the beginning in the creation. God created the heavens and the earth and all that in them is in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. The word rest is he desisted. He stopped. He quit. There was nothing else to do. It had been accomplished. It is a Shabbat, a Sabbath. It's a quitting, a cessation and that's how God works. He works mightily and miraculously and wonderfully and brings things to accomplishment and then it's done. It is finished. And it's there for the enjoyment. And when God rested on the seventh day, he had given the earth to his image, man. And he was to now have dominion over the earth and to enjoy the, the earth. In fact, to enter into God's rest to enjoy all those things that God had prepared for him in six days of pretty outstanding labor. And then God rested. And there was man in the garden at rest, in the presence of God, in the creation. And the nasty story that always messes up what God wants to do is our sin. Think about how wonderful it would have been if Adam had not sinned. That if he had obeyed all the commandments, especially the commandment to be fruitful and multiply, and there were multiple generations and there were human beings, not by creation but by procreation, over the face of the earth, and they were upright, and they were righteous, and they were doing good, and they were having dominion, and they were having children, and they were raising godly families, and 
What a great praise to the Lord to have a, a planet teeming with billions of godly image bearers, upright, enhancing, multiplying, producing, enjoying, eating of the fruit, and living forever. No death, no sorrow, no theft, no murder, no rape, no fraud, no lying, no cheating, no hostilities. You can't even imagine that. <laughs> and neither can I, really. But that's God's cosmic purpose for his people. That's what God had in mind with Adam. And I'm here to tell you this morning that God is bringing that about. He's just doing it through the process of redemption. As I've said many times before, I confess to you that, that I'm a man of short faith and I, I wouldn't have done it God's way. I'd have wiped them all out and started over. I can guarantee you that. I would have wiped out the whole mess. If I can create, I can decreate. And there's a lot of passages in the Bible that talk about a decreation. Skies turning dark instead of light. Things falling instead of being raised up. Things crumbling instead of being built. Things burning instead of things growing. I would have decreated. And I would have started all over. God didn't do that. He had invested in that creature his image. And God had fallen in love from all eternity with that which he was going to produce. And so instead of starting all over, scrubbing it and starting all over, God redeemed. He said, I'm going to save the race save the species, save humanity, and all around in nature and all of my creation will follow suit. And so that rest was, was paramount. But you know the story of the early centuries of human existence. Read about it in the first few chapters of Genesis. People became wicked. They became so that every thought was always evil continually. That's a quotation out of Genesis 5 and 6. That's how bad it got. Sin always ruins God's good plans. I don't know why God gets blamed for things when horrible things happen. That's not God's plan. That's not his, his purpose. That's not God's doing. That's the doing of us. We are the, the rebellious people. We're the sinful. We're the ones that provoke and tempt and follow our own lust and all of that. And when bad things happen, they happen because of sin in the human heart and in the human condition and in humanity in general. And sin goes from just being a little bit shady to being absolutely atrocious, unspeakable. Every area of life has its awful sinfulness. Life itself, we talk about abortion. Procreation, we talk about same-sex marriage. Everything that God has put into the good order has been violated by sinful men and women. I'm telling you, I'm sick of it. And I bet most of you are too. I'm sick of it. And God 
has given a redemption. That's why the scripture talks about, it says, they heard the good news. The good news came to us just as it did to them. The whole story that God projects into this mess and mass is a story of good news. God has an evangel. He has a good report. He's trying to tell us it's going to be okay. After those early years of sin and degradation and apostasy and depravity, once again, God gave them hope. There was a man appeared on the scene whose name was Noah. And Noah means rest, relief, respite. And you know the story of God's rescue of at least that much of humanity. Eight souls preserved in an ark. And I'll tell you that that's how God preserves people. He puts them in an ark. And Jesus is our ark. Just like the ark was designed to survive the awful punishment of a deluge, a flood upon the earth, Jesus Christ, the ark, is designed to survive the final judgment of God upon a sinful humanity and a corrupted and a depraved earth. When they went into Canaan, the Lord said the land was to have its rest every seven years and then a super rest every seven times seven. Every 49 years, there was to be a 50th year, a jubilee year. God had written into his program this notion of rest, this Sabbath notion, this Sabbatarian idea. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 132 that the temple, coming to the temple, the temple was God's resting place. He was, he was there. And when the people were to enter into Canaan, God gave them the instructions that they needed. Let me read what God told them when they, when they were to enter into Canaan. When they were enter into the rest, which we have learned from our studies, they did not enter into. It's the um, Deuteronomy chapter 10 is where I am. Let me read this one short paragraph. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? And notice, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you this day. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth and everything that's in it. Yet the Lord has set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, just as you are this day. In fact, the Lord even declares to them on this occasion, I just noticed a few verses down, says, God has made you numerous as the stars of heaven. Remember, that's what God said to Abraham when he called him. He said, I'm going to make your nation, your descendants, like the, as numerous as the stars of heaven, an uncountable multitude. And God's people were well on their way to fulfilling that great promise of multiplying and filling the earth that God had given first to Adam, but now Abraham would receive that promise. And yet you know the tragic story, and it's outlined in our previous chapter. And that's the summary of that whole chapter is the people rebelled, provoked God. They had an evil and an unbelieving heart. They fell away in apostasy. They were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. They were disobedient, 
sinful, rebellious. And so we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. But then our chapter says, as we move to four, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Because they were not united by faith, it is a strong axiom of gospel preaching, of declaring the good news, that without faith it's impossible to please God, that you must come believing. And it's not just a profession of faith. We're especially told by the New Testament writer that you say you have faith, can you demonstrate it by works? Do you show it by what you do, how you live, how you think? Is your belief in sync with your behavior? And if not, you probably don't have an authentic faith. And that's the whole point of these exhortations that come up time and again, almost in every chapter in the book of Hebrews. The preacher, this is a sermon, by the way, the book of Hebrews. This preacher is trying to get God's people to see the importance, the absolute imperative of believing and trusting God and following Him that way. And the good news, the gospel is that there is a saving grace that comes to us eliciting from us the right response, which is a saving faith. And a saving grace bestowed upon a person who has saving faith results in a salvation, in a rest, in an entering into God's rest. We see in the Old Testament that this is developed. Let me just sketch a couple of things here that I've noted God promised that they would have it when they entered. In Jeremiah, when the people were in captivity, God promised them through the mouth of Jeremiah that they would return to the land from exile and they would return to their, literally, he said, to their rest. In fact, even when David was given all the instructions he needed to, to Solomon about building the temple and some things that he did, the Bible says that David had given rest to the people. Not a full and final rest, but the rest. Rest from their enemies round about. Our Lord has given us rest from our enemies. Sin, Satan, all of those things, death, the last enemy. All of those enemies that have conquering power over us have been stopped they have been conquered. There still remains a rest. We are told to enter into that rest, and Christ is that rest. In fact, our passage we had in our liturgy just a few moments ago where the Lord says, Come unto me, all you labored heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What do you think he meant by that? What do you think the people understood by that? What do you think that is? 
That's his salvation. It's a, it's a grant. It's a bestowal. I will give you rest. That's where you find rest. Rest for your souls and eternal rest. It is in a celestial city, a city to come. It's a city with God in eternity. And let me close by just reading a passage a little further down in Hebrews. And I hope we'll get there maybe next spring as we continue our study. But uh, if we get there, we'll enjoy it. But I'm not going to wait. I want to just read uh, to you what the passage already says. It's found in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 22. And it contrasts the mountain of Moses, Sinai, the law, the thunder and the lightning, the fire, the smoke, the noise, and the law with the mountain of God with salvation and peace and prosperity and fulfillment. And this is what he says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God the judge of all and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant in the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. As I glance at that, I see that's an eight-point sermon because there's eight things that describe that rest, that final, eternal, celestial, heavenly rest. It's Mount Zion. Mount Zion in Israel, in Jerusalem, was the place where the free foe worship of... It was different from the Temple Mount. It was a different mountain. It was the place where there was nothing but a bare tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. And David went in there and prayed to the Lord and worshiped the Lord and sang to the Lord and did everything freely and spontaneously. It was a place of gospel. It was a place of spiritual renewal in the presence of God. He didn't have anything to do with sacrificing animals and all that. That had been accomplished. It was David's enjoyment of nothing but the Lord. The great promise of Israel is I'll be with you and in the final analysis I will be in your midst. It's what you find in the book of Revelation. God is dwelling in the midst. That's Mount Zion. It's the city of the living God. There were cities always built and there were cities that were destroyed and like Jericho was destroyed and then it was ordered that it never be rebuilt. And all the cities and finally the city of God, Jerusalem, represented God's stronghold, God's dwelling place. The city of Jerusalem is totally inadequate to house the true and living God. There is a heavenly city, and it's called the heavenly Jerusalem. In the fourth place, the angels in festal gathering. This is something we don't catch on to. We're so rationalistic and, and materialistic in our thinking that we don't really grasp the heavenly order of the myriads of angels. They're referred to all through Scripture. We just tend to read past them. But God made among his creations this massive population of ministering spirits. Creatures that do nothing but serve and adore the Lord. That's a pretty good example for us. And we're going to be there and they're going to be singing their songs, holy, holy, holy. And the seraphim, they're going to be singing and they're going to be rejoicing. And all we've got to do is just kind of step into the choir and kind of hold our pitch. But we're singing a song of redemption. We're singing a song of salvation by grace. And then assembly. 
He said the assembly of those enrolled. The vision in the Bible is, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Are you on the roll? When the roll is called up yonder, will you be there? That's the picture in the scriptures of, of people whose names have been inscribed upon a great census. In fact, that was the whole teaching in the Old Testament where they took one census after another and another census and they, they got the count, the total count, the count of fighting men and all these other things. Those were all census taking to let us know that's how God works. He's got a role. He's got a census. Is your name on that role? When the books are opened and the book is opened. And that brings us, of course, to the very next feature of that is God the judge. God the judge, the heavenly father, the final arbiter of all things. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? It was a fundamental principle of Abraham's religion. He believed that the God of all the earth would do right. That's what God will do, and everything will be settled and be ordered. Every peace, scintilla of justice will have been enacted in God's justice system. There's a lot of people that get away with a lot of things on this earth and in this life, but there's a reckoning. Everyone will give an account, and God will mete out perfect justice, and every Ill desert and every penalty will be exacted in the malefactor. Except for those who've already had all their penalties paid in Christ. Those that's already received the full blunt of the wrath of God will have done so in Christ because he drank that cup to the dregs. The cup didn't pass from him. He drank it. And he absorbed all of the righteous punishment that's due you and me in himself. And that brings us, of course, to the people, us, the spirits of righteous made perfect. What a beautiful way. I, it was always a strange phrase when I was younger. I remember reading that thinking, ooh, that sounds kind of spooky. The spirits of righteous men made perfect. The more I've learned, I remember Paul Settle had a real good lecture on that years ago and, and, and he keep, kept talking about that. That's those people that have been made righteous by the operation of the salvific work of God in Christ. We're not there because of our own righteousness, but we have been made into perfect. Don't you long to be better than you are? And once you get there, don't you long to be better still? And don't you long to be perfect and exonerated and justified in everything you say and do? You have to have somebody to make you like that. You can't get there yourself. And that's who will be in heaven. It'll be those spirits of righteous made perfect. And then finally, in the eighth place of this eight-point sermon is we will come to Jesus. And I love the way he puts it, and to Jesus. He could have put a period right there, but he didn't. He says, let me tell you about Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out, but Jesus' blood cries louder and cries with hope. Abel's blood cried with despair, longing for justice. 
our Lord's blood cries out, I will cover your sin. I will atone for your sin. I will pay for your sin. Hear the blood of Christ crying out. Hear the gospel message emanating from the cross. Hear the clarion call of the mediatorial work of Christ. He died for you, a sinner, so that you can come into this, this rest, this relief, this respite, this blessing, and be part of all that God intended from the first day and the seventh day in creation. I like the way this passage refers to the gospel, the good news, because this is gospel. This is gospel. 